Welcome to the Twilight Conversations. My name is Jimmy, and in this podcast, I'll be exploring human relationships, human potential, and that curious space between the dark and the light. Hello, and welcome to the Twilight Conversations, episode 38. 38. Episode 38. I've no idea what accent that is, but it reminds you of a funny, um, a funny thing I saw. It wasn't that funny. What I thought about it was funny, right? So I was on the bus going to work. I think it was on South Circular Road. And I happened to look at a window. Something caught my eye. And there was a, a poster on the window that someone had made and put up. And they had written kind of in marker, Stop the War. Which was, I thought, a beautiful, cute thing. You know, it was lovely. Absolutely stop the war. I presume they're referring to the Ukrainian war. Uh, but either way, it's, it's, a, it's a sentiment I support 100%. But it was just kind of written in America. And for some reason, I imagined like uh, the Russian ambassador or some Russian military person happened to be driving by and it caught his eye. And he went, oh, fuck, I better ring. I can't do Russian accent. <laughs> Vladimir, <laughs> I'm in Dublin. Stop the war. I'm up to see <laughs> You know what I mean? You know the idea that someone will see that and that'll be, there'll be a chain effect and they'll stop the war based on this. And Putin will kind of go, oh, in Dublin on a, in marker on a window. Okay, I'm, I'll start making the calls now. Retreat, retreat. <laughs> Dublin doesn't want it. <laughs> it was just a funny thought. Anyway, so welcome to episode 38 of the Twilight Conversations. Um, you know, wouldn't that be lovely if that happened though? How just it just caught my attention, my imagination again, that somehow this it was this little bed set, right? Stop the war. You know, with all the negotiations that are going on, the some Russian diplomat sees it and, and has a, a spiritual awakening. I'll be talking about spiritual awakenings as well. And, and makes contact and he has a load of dirt on Putin so he can you know, listen, I'm gonna release that unless you stop things. I'm in Dublin here, I'm after seeing this. This has to stop. We can fantasize, can't we? So episode 38 of the Twilight Conversations is about um, insanity and sanity, um, psychosis, neurosis. And I really want to explore, you know, what what do we mean? What is insanity? You know, we what, what terms do we use? Madness, barking mad, ooh, barking at the moon. Your man's fucking barking, you know. I was I love being described as barking, it's kind of a compliment, isn't it? George Fanny's fucking barking mad. You know. Um it's usually in the right way, so that we know there's a kind of a madness that's kind of beautiful. Irish people have a there's a we which I think I said Irish people don't take to psychoanalysis because we're a bit mad. You know, creative, crazy, wild in our thinking, you know. Um, that kind of mad is beautiful. We all love that. Then there's another kind of a madness that goes more into the arts and creativity and uh, lots of our best music, our best poetry comes out of that madness. Because you have to kind of let go into the madness of the swamp or the the stew of beautiful, crazy ideas just below consciousness, you know, in that kind of semi or Twilight Consciousness, if you will, uh, place, you know. That's where all the good stuff is. But when you go there, you have to, you know, as we said with the shadow self, I don't know who this we is I'm talking about. It's just me here in a room. <laughs> I've got a whole production team. But, you know, into the, the place also where we have different parts of ourselves that maybe don't always feel good or, you know, 
Uh, but we have to encounter that. Somehow we have to meet the, the intersection between utter despair and agony. Yeah, I'm right in there already. Jimmy, I begin to the despair and agony, man. I'm trying to get off everything. And I listen to your podcast, man, and I'm staying on drugs for my life. You need something for your head. Tell us a blade and joke. Cheer us up, you know what I mean? Isn't it funny how many people think life's about cheering? We want to be cheered up, of course, but, you know, you have to avoid any important conversations. You know, we know the paradox of to enter the light, we must move through the darkness, you know? And I'll be talking about the dark night of the soul and how that often, um, uh, you know, spiritual awakening or spiritual emergence, emergency can be confused with uh, psychosis. You know, mysticism can be confused with mental illness. I'll say a bit about that, try and differentiate the, the two things, uh, the two different energies. But there is a kind of an intersection there. Um, I was reminded uh, the fantastic Anne O'Connell, Redzar, I know you're out there listening, Redzar, um, was talking a bit about even Ivor Brown's work, you know, back in the... 80s, 90s in the old church up in uh, what was St. Brendan's. And as a psychiatrist, he really broke a lot of the mold. He broke the boundaries. He really was out there in terms of how he viewed men- mental illness. And his work was based on Groff's work, Stanislav Groff's work, kind of holotropic breath work, the kind of ab reaction, you know, deep, fast breathing in the abdomen, which with music, and they were using LSD as well, under controlled settings to help and he got everyone there these were like severely mentally ill patients as they were called off their medications the controversial thing for this project and they would move through the psychosis if you like if you will that was the experiment and transcend that and you know make contact with trauma or blocks that were bringing them into psychosis and really in a safe environment you know go mad and work through all of that stuff and I think it was pretty successful it was you know uh, but it wasn't given enough time or space to really follow up on. Now there's lots of breath work uh, available for people from Groff, Groff style work, which isn't necessarily designed for severely mentally ill patients, but well, the general public use it. They want a kind of a spiritual growth and various forms of breath work. But that, that might be very important just to mention Ivor Brown is a pioneer from the psychiatric world really who began to see things very differently and experiment and explore and see the whole thing differently. I name him because I'm going to work a lot off R.D. Lang, um, who I have mentioned before. R.D. Lang would have, I suppose, he was chronically alcoholic. He never really got sober, as far as I'm aware. Um, But he had what would have been seen as controversial views to the whole area of mental health and insanity and schizophrenia, but when you were actually very humane and beautiful, so he kind of stood out a bit. He was a pioneer as well. He was out there, you know. Um, and one of the things that the many wonderful creative things R.D. Lang said, Glasgow, Glasgow, R.D. Lang from Glasgow, was known for, and I love this, and a lot of the podcast is going to be built around this kind of premise, this notion, if you like, Insanity, a perfect natural adjustment to an insane world. How about that then? Will you go with that with me? Because I'm more interested in the collective insanity, the societal and the cultural madness that we have that can 
feed or create what we know to be insanity in the individual or psychosis or, you know, he or she's a bit fucking crazy. They need to be locked up or they need to be given heavy medication. You know, I think we need to look at more into what creates that in our families and our society, you know. It's not a sane society now, is it? Come on. That's, that's, I was joking about the Ukraine war and the, the, you know, stop the war. This is the 24th century or 22nd, I don't know what the fuck it is, but it's late on, late in the day, and we're still in wars. Greed dominates, unkindness, selfishness, ignorance. They're, they're the kind of uh, principles the world lives by, you know, capitalism, uh, stand on the other fella, get ahead, you know. I think it was Groff was citing a kind of a contrast to kind of the Freudian view of mental health, you know, because I'm, I'm interested in what is sanity. We, we, we kind of, I'll talk a bit about psychosis and all that type of stuff, right? But what, what do we, what do we define as well? I was speaking about this on the last podcast, 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 podcast. That's my alter ego. I come in every so often. Yes, I do a podcast. My name is, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, do you know what I mean? I can go off, so I have to be very careful. I can go off um, God knows where. What's the model for wellness? And I don't think there is one. I mean, there's lots of, we all have ideas about it. There's lots documented about what, you know, abnormalities of the brain is, what uh, abnormal thinking is, abnormal psychology, psychosis, yada, 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 right? Well, there's lot, but there's not an alternative offered. So this is the way to live, a program of living, which is why I like to say the 12-step programs have a program for living that is geared towards absolute sanity, to wholeness. So I love the term wholeness for sanity, you know, and in, insanity is this disintegrated, you know, sense of mind that it's not whole, it's in different pieces because there's too much pain. And if you think about it, well, that's the difference, isn't it? Because I can be barking fucking mad, as any of you that know me will know, but I know I am. And that's the difference. That's probably why I'm not locked up in a mental institution. Because there's a part of me, a very strong part, that kind of knows when I'm having thoughts and fantasies and funny, creative ideas. Uh, or if I'm quite irrational, I know that I'm irrational. So that's an important piece. I'll come back to the adult self who is aware of the thought process. When you move into insanity, you lose that adult sense of self and you think all the other stuff is real, you know, there's more to it than that. So um, that's what I'd be really focusing a lot on. What is wellness? What is, what's okay? How do you know? Who decides what's okay? We decide ourselves. But then we we're, we're against the society thing and they've got all different ideas. And as far as I'm looking at society, um, whatever society is, you know, uh, it's kind of something out there, isn't it? It's just out there over the wall. Society is there. As a kid, I used to always wonder what society was, you know. I think I think I thought it was underwear because there used to be ads for underwear called society. <laughs> I thought, why is everyone talking about underwear? A society won't allow that. Um, you know, but it's this kind of strange thing, isn't it? But it's made up of human beings, people. So um, I'm beginning to see I'm part of society now. Before I used to be looking on at it, kind of going, what's going on there? But what, what is well, what is happy? So I'll say a lot more about that when I talk about spiritual awakening, spiritual emergency or spiritual, spiritual emergence, slightly different. 
as opposed to uh, psychosis, mental illness, uh, mental breakdown. Hang on. That's an insanely gorgeous fucking mug, I'll have to tell you that now. I wonder what makes it so. Is it the mood? Was it the way I did the pot? I don't know. We'll never know. A lot of mysteries in life, aren't there? So, there will be musical references. Pink Floyd will definitely be cited due to their wonderful observation of the very thing I'm talking about, the insanity of society. The, you know, they were always commenting or uh, reflecting that back and the way they did it, excuse me, through beautiful music, really kind of thought-provoking, inspiring lyrics, but they seem to take on like an introject of that insanity into themselves, but they were really talking about the, the capitalist society, the kind of the cruelty, the unkindness, the uh, duplicity, the kind of dishonesty that's all around and how that it was so difficult to survive and that, how to, how isolating that was, how do we communicate, you know, uh, being out of touch, you know, wanting to reach out and touch and be touched, all of that type of stuff. Floyd were just so amazing at that, you know. Um, where were you? Yeah. So, but what they did was they, they made it an introject. They made it, I'm insane. I'm mad. I've got to build the wall, hence the album, the wall. There's something wrong with me. You know, I spoke before way back about I'm okay, you're okay. Uh, that those positions and Pink Floyd then as a way of expressing this insanity of society, they took the, uh, I'm not okay, you're okay stance that everything outside of me, the system is really right. I'm wrong. There's something wrong with me. And they did that brilliantly to portray mental illness, uh, estrangement, uh, de- deprivation, human suffering loss, separation, anxiety. They were just so good and nameless. I'll be coming back to Pink Floyd, probably Dark Side of the Moon, and a little bit about Wish You Were Here. So, R.D. Lang, he also said something, he had said some very funny things as well. Life is a sexually transmitted disease, and the mortality rate is 100%. <laughs> you know, he was a quirky character, very brilliant mind. The, the Divide itself was one of his uh, classic pieces of work, but he was controversial as much as he... Now imagine this being controversial. He treated patients as human beings and equal. And his other, where he got lots of tut-tuts from his peers and colleagues because of the way he connected with clients. And he, he crossed lots of boundaries. He didn't violate any. He crossed lots and tried to reach... He could see the humanity. I think Ivor Brown was the same. There are many others, but they're there too that come to mind. But Lang particularly uh, went out on the limb back in the 60s, 70s. And he struggled with his own alcoholism. So he was very vulnerable as well, you know. And then that stopped him from being taken seriously. So he kind of, as often creative geniuses do, they shoot themselves in the foot, you know, or in the feet. Um, Lang also said, madness need not be all breakdown. It may also be a breakthrough. You've probably heard that before. You know, rather than a mental breakdown, it's a breakthrough. That's an important piece for therapy, isn't it? Because sometimes it's, it gets worse before it gets better. Same in recovery. The darkest hour is just before the dawn, you know. Um, he goes on to say, uh, there's potential liberation and renewal uh, as well as adjustment, or sorry, as well as enslavement and existential death. So I'll just go through that again. Madness need not be all breakdown. It may also be breakthrough. It's potential liberation and renewal as well as 
enslavement and ex- existential death. Beautiful. And the last thing, a little quote from Lang, just to get a flavour of the guy and what I hope this podcast will be about. Um, whether life is worth living depends on whether there is love in life. I love that. Love the way you love me, baby. Whoa, love to love you, baby. That's what it's like, isn't it? Wasn't that Donna Summer back in the 70s? Who also has passed away? Most of the artists I know have passed away. She was the first little bit of useless info now. When she did, um, that was her first big hit. Then she did, she was the first techno person, really. Uh, she brought electric music in to soul. What was the big one she had? Oh, it's so good, it's so good, it's so good, it's so good. Ding, ding, ding. You know that one? What's it called? I feel love. I feel love. Brilliant, brilliant. But it was really unusual when it came out because no one was doing that type of stuff but Donna Summer did. Anyway, that reminded me of this Love to Love You Baby was whether life is worth living depends on whether there is love in life. And I, I couldn't agree more. Now really that's that's the that's the core of this podcast. I, I'm hoping all of the podcasts really are really about love in that broad sense. Whether life is worth living depends on whether there is love in life. And it's a very simple saying, isn't it? But like, I believe all suffering, mental illness, even psychosis, at some way or another comes from when love isn't present or felt. It may be there, but it's not felt. It's not getting through. The love isn't being felt. The love to love you, baby feeling isn't there. I love the way you love me, you know. J.J. Cale also has a song. Love to love you, baby. All of the stuff is about love, you know. And, and yeah, kind of in songs, it's kind of romantic love. But where we can transcend that and feel this is a bigger, you know. What does it mean to feel loved? To feel safe? Mm-hmm. Appreciated? Where someone, to be known? Whether this is from our parents, our family, our friends. We need it from everyone, our loved ones. To be known where someone is passionate about wanting to know you. Where someone really wants to know you. All the dark bits that aren't really that dark at all, you know. I'm thinking of um, the Moody Blues, the wonderful mystical Moody Blues from the 60s and 70s. Um, I think it might be a song from Question of Balance, but the line is wonderful. And the line is, if you only knew what was inside of me now, you wouldn't want to know me somehow. I remember hearing that as a kind of a young teenager or when it was quite young and, and really identifying with that, not quite sure what it meant, but the guy, I know that. God, that other people have that, you know. Um, and of course, there's nothing more beautiful than a human being revealing themselves to you. Unless, of course, they're revealing their murdering psychopath. <laughs> but you know what I mean? In general, you know, if you only knew what was inside of me now, you wouldn't want to know me somehow. Um, how many people can identify with that that's listening? Well, and, and I would guess, my guess would be, this is certainly my experience. What's inside of us that we're afraid the other won't want to know is gentleness, love, vulnerability, beauty. We, we want to show someone our love. We want to say, look, look at me like a child, like a teenager, like an adult. Look, look at how I feel. But somehow between that coming from inside of me to outside into your ears, heart and soul, something might happen to it and you might ridicule me or misunderstand that and you might turn away from me. You know, again, and this is where insanity comes from, real insanity, breakdown, 
you know, when we're not met, when somehow there's distortion, when that love isn't safe and flowing and it's kind of misinterpreted. And, you know, we've all been there. You know, have you ever shared yourself with someone and, and then you kind of go, oh, fuck, what did I say that for? And it's very clear that they don't understand what you meant and they kind of go, oh, yeah, I, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I need to go. <laughs> you know, and you get all those, oh, I'm too much now, I shouldn't have said that. But you know they just didn't get it. You know, they just didn't get what you were saying. They weren't in the place. They weren't mature enough to be able to hold what you're saying and hear it and kind of be uh, strong enough in themselves to kind of go, yeah, I've got that too. Yeah. Isn't that lovely? You know, we can, we can coexist and meet there, you know, and, 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 and share the joy of ah, just be no games, no masks. Now I know there's times we need a little bit of that, but no veils. The veil can come down, and I'm 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 thinking there is nothing as exhilarating, as magical, as beautiful, as sane, as meeting someone's eyes, physically, spiritually, a soul. You know the eyes of the windows of the soul in full transparency, naked, literally. The very thing that we want to go. Ooh, I'm not going there when it's. Again, as I said before, you, you don't do it with a narcissist or a psychopath because they'll rip it shreds when you choose or you're chosen by uh, somebody or somebodies who will meet you in that way. There is no turn on like that. There is no space in your that you'll ever meet on this planet that will top that as a peak human experience. <sighs> wow. How about that? And that can be friends. Maybe family members, if you're lucky, to have that with, you know, a sibling or a cousin or an auntie or uncle, whatever. Maybe uh, loved ones, if you're lucky, because many, many loved ones don't have that. Many people do love each other, but they're kind of tied up in knots and they don't kind of meet really in that space. You know, so I've got a peak human experience. So if, you, if you've encountered that in your life, well... That's pretty rare because a lot of human beings don't have that. And that makes for loneliness and pain because we seek that. You know, we want to go back, back to, I think, or forward to, because it's the same thing because it comes around in a circle anyway, where we came from and where we're going. You know, yeah, that's an, an amazing place. So I'm, I'm identifying that as sanity. I'm identifying that as wellness, as health. Now, there might be various stages to be in that space because you need at least two human beings and you need one to take the lead on that, to take the risk or the, or, or you'll go together on that, you know, because you're kind of going, right, will, will you, if I go, will you go, you know, ding, 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 ding. And, and then you might, there's that familiarity where you kind of go, oh, he's, he's where I'm at. Oh, I, the, oh, I can open that door. Ah, I can breathe. I can be in the way, I think, is it, is it a, a biblical saying, you know, you must become like a child to enter the kingdom of God. Something like that. It's, it's, it's that. It's almost like you're going back to the vulnerability. You know that transparency when you look into a baby's eyes and he or she is just there. They're not pretending. They don't have enough subtlety to kind of, you know, play any games or cover. They're just there. Well, imagine that as an adult. Pretty fucking impressive, huh? I think so. Anyway, but that's my model of sanity or part of my model of sanity. Okay. 
let's get into some of the clinical stuff. All right, there's lots of different terms, you know, it's that mad, crazy, then they're used in different ways and it depends on the tone. Because sometimes you can be called crazy, depending on the energy, it's like a, it's a compliment. You're crazy fuck, you know. Depends on how someone says something, doesn't it? It can be very pejorative. You're mad. Or you're mad. <laughs> and I want more of you, you know? So we use those terms, we throw them around. But let's go with the clinical terms like psychosis, psychotic. And and I think it's a psych psyche is the mind, is the soul. Um what does osis mean? I don't know. Psychosis, neurosis, it's a way of being. The DSM. The diagnostic, diagnostic. <laughs> There's that other person coming out. Who says that? The diagnostic, the diagnostic uh, manual says the DSM five. I think it might be or whatever number it is, because they come out and they renew them. You know, this is the kind of medical journal. You know, with and psychiatry will will look to this as well. Um, diagnostic something manual. I forget what the S stands for. They talk about psychosis being like a a, a cluster of or, or uh, it needs to have quite a, a few different things going on. Delusions, okay. Disruption or just regular speech patterns. Uh, paranoia, hallucinations might be there. Dysregulated kind of movement, motor movement. Um, cat- catatonia, catatonic, like, you know, that kind of like completely still look someone's in. Now, I know a lot of the medications can create this as well, but they can be there as well, that kind of just still look, or someone's very over-agitated. Um, uh, the, the motor movements are affected. Um, you, you can kind of feel it from someone, you know. Now, those things can be there temporarily with people. Delusions can be an addiction, as we know. They can be drug-induced, uh, alcohol-induced. But once the, the alcohol and drugs are out of the system and the person's in some kind of recovery program, any of that psychotic behavior passes, it's gone. Unless the person has other issues as well, which can happen. They find that out in recovery. So it's often called, you know, um, drug-induced psychosis or alcohol-induced psychosis. That goes with addiction. But then when someone gets clean and sober, they might have some more delusional stuff, but they're not psychotic anymore. They, they're, they're aware. Right? That they're, psychotic basically means not in touch with reality, in consensus reality. Not able to... Uh, hold an adult space. I talk about the adult space. We'll hear divorced from reality, removed from reality, what we call consensus reality. They're living in another world in their heads and they think that that's real. So they're not with the actual reality of what's going on. So they're the kind of things you'll find, combinations of them and you have to get a diagnosis. Sometimes it's quite obvious to someone because it'll be quite severe and that person may need to be in a safe space, a unit, to protect themselves and others because someone can have a, a violent psychotic episode where they'll hurt themselves or someone else. Very painful. Uh, so you've got that extreme version. But you've got all variations of that. We call them psychotic episodes, you know. So in a very simple way, it means I am no longer able to discern what is real and what isn't. You know, I've lost touch with reality, literally, the concrete reality. Um, and I'm living in, in a delusional space and that may include hallucinations like in schizophrenia for example so you have a lot of those kind of mental illnesses those kind of uh, presentations and if they're consistent then someone needs psychiatric care or help and it may mean going in for safety or it may mean uh, attending daily a psychiatrist, a regime of medications, maybe antipsychotic medications, along with some supportive therapy, counselling style stuff, 
you know, a psychiatric team will usually be involved, psychologist, a psychiatrist, a therapist, a doctor, you know, they're all the elements that'll be there. And they tend to view it very much that way. So they're looking at trying to reduce symptoms, obviously. I do, they don't necessarily do a lot of underlying work like what uh, uh, Lang was doing and um, Ivor Brown was doing to try to find what's really going on even, you know, because as a view in therapy, you, know, you don't try and work with psychosis and that's quite rightly so. But in a, in a, a controlled setting, a safe environment, you could find out what's really going on. Is that all we're going to do? Medicate them? You know, and, and yeah, you've got to keep people safe and society safe and all of that, but people can be in varying degrees of that, but some people are in that their whole lives and they have to kind of take medication, seek psychiatric support, you know, have good friend support, all of that type of stuff. Um, but lots of other people may have little bits of psychosis here and there, but they're kind of in touch with reality, but they might have episodes occasionally. You know, and they, they know that and they address that. I think one of the best and most simple descriptions to discern the difference between psychosis and inverted commas normality, I mean, what the fuck is normal, what used to be called neurosis. And I've used this kind of joke before, you've heard me saying it, so the neurotic and the psychotic. So the rest of the world is, you know, us, we're all kind of a bit neurotic, you know, but we're not psychotic. But the difference between the two is the psychotic adds two and two together and he or she will get five. So there, there's that dysregulation in our in touch with reality. The rest of us, we know two and two is four. We just can't fucking stand it. We hate it. We don't like facts. Do you know what I mean? We struggle. Now, that's a kind of insanity, isn't it? It's a different kind of insanity, you know? Uh, so at least the people in the funny farm, they know they're fucking barking mad. They're not deluded in that sense. But we are. We're out in society and we think we're all grand, but we're fighting with reality the whole time. We don't like it. You know, it's so like a conflict with the self, you know. Um, that's why a, a lot of uh, 12-step programs or addiction recovery style programs focuses hugely on acceptance of facts, of how things are, because it's recognized that the core of a lot of human struggle is fighting with the reality of things. We know it, but we don't like it. We don't want to accept it. We don't want to accept he's gone. She's gone. My team has lost. Liverpool fucking spanked the shit out of Man United last week. 7-0. Remember I was worried about it? Get up the yard. How about that? And then go and lose to Bournemouth. I had difficulty accepting that and it caused me conflict and suffering. I had to work on acceptance on this kind of quite mundane issue. You know, but think about bigger issues that we're fighting with ourselves inside. So neurosis is often called the conflict within the self, where we know, we know what the reality is. We know she ain't coming back. We know he's gone. That job isn't going to happen. You know, their hairline's receding and there's nothing you can fucking do about it. Although they're all going to talk again, these, these things. But you know what I mean? When reality, when gravity starts to get out, but we just don't like it, you know. So then we can recognize our, our difficulties, our problems don't come from the world, really. They come from us not accepting the world. No, but we're also in a society that is not very helpful there either, you know. It's not very humane or kind, you know. As I said, well, what's valued in society is greed, standing on other people's heads, getting to the top, being intolerant, being racist, being a prick, basically. It's kind of seen as okay. That's our society for you. You know, if you do all those things, you wouldn't be locked up. You'd be like, well done. Well done. 
oh yes, you got another business going. Good for you. You sacked lots of people. Brilliant. You know, lots of people are homeless because of what you did. Fantastic. Well done. You know, that's the distortion we have. We think that's sane. It's totally bonkers, isn't it? You know, it's crazy. It's crazy. And so we might need to redefine what we think is sane or well, you know. As if there's any therapist listening or anyone, you know, listening that has the ex- have, has had the experience of or has met the experience of, I'm afraid to say a bit like Justin Hayward from the Moody Blues, if you knew what was inside me, I'm afraid to tell you how I really feel because if I tell you, you will think I'm mad and you'll get me signed in somewhere or you won't want to work with me. That usually tells me that this person is more sane than ever. They're just a victim victim of the insane. Let's come back to that John Lennon isolation. Um, there, we, we are all victims of the kind of insane society we live in with its fucked up values. So we confuse being authentic and real, which I, I cited as sane, very sexy, right? Very attractive quality to be authentic and real. We confuse that then with, oh, if I tell you, then you're not going to like me because I'm looking at all what's on the telly and the values are all different. They don't talk about being vulnerable. They talk about like being cool and pretending you don't have feelings and you know what I mean? And you know, you're, you're ruthless. Being ruthless is cool. Ruthless is fucking ugly, I think. Um, so we've got a kind of a, a very topsy-turvy, upside-down set of values in our culture, society, you know? Um, and that can, can contribute to people feeling hatred for themselves, uh, shame, huge amounts of shame. Uh, and the thing we need to do most of all as human beings is reveal ourselves to another and to be revealed to, you know, and meet other human beings. That's like food. We need that. And if that's not there, there's a kind of a loneliness that goes with that that is almost unbearable. That's insanity. Not not to have that to feel you can't meet that, that we've got a world that won't, doesn't allow that very much and will humiliate you and put you down and laugh at you and, you know, won't promote that. What's seen as sane is to go out and have eight points, loads of bumps of coke, uh, have unprotected sex, unprotected sex with fucking lunatics. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and brag in the morning about all of that, you know. That's valued in our society, right? We know that. We punch the head off a few people as well in the process. You know, oh, it's a fucking great night. I don't remember, and it was fucking great. Ah, oh, he's a fucking lightweight. He couldn't keep up with us. You know what I mean? Let's go right through till the morning. This is what we aspire to, ladies and gentlemen. Think about it. Think about think about what we consider to be okay. <laughs> fucking mental isn't it? and as I said before the very same people would kind of balk at the idea of going to AA or going to a therapist to say I think I have a problem in case someone sees them <laughs> oh you have to laugh so that's why humour is beautiful in this isn't it uh, humour is mm, completely sane yeah I'm thinking of the likes of Monty Python and uh, Spike Milligan and all the, you know, Connolly I've cited for all these great comedians who are all kind of mad in the most beautiful way. And it's somehow they transcend insanity through their humor. They highlight the madness in society through their humor. They're making those observations. And Monty Python were completely surreal and zany, you know. 
know, there's the whole crazy other. And I'm even talking about before the life of Brian, you know. You've been a very naughty boy. He's not going out. <laughs> oh, please let him out. No, no, go away. Right. All that madness they did. But even before then, in the Mon- when Monty Python began, they had all these bizarre sketches. But I knew what they were doing. And not only I knew, but they were, they were really like, um, I suppose, really exposing the insanity of society through these insane sketches. Do you know that paradox? They knew it was all bullshit, you know what I mean, out there in the world. So they were doing this mad stuff to try and highlight that and to somehow work through their pain and the, 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 the craziness of life by creating these mad characters and these very, very, very funny characters, you know. I'm just thinking of a sketch. Um, it's very hard to translate a Monty Python sketch on a podcast because they're very visual as well. But um, I think it was called The Bicycle Trip. And one of them, I think it was Brian Camp was his name, was going on a bicycle trip around Europe and I think it was in the it was meant to be in the forties, and um, he got captured by the Nazis. Anyway, he was an English guy, typical posh English fella. He got captured by the Nazis, and they were really cruel to him. And they were, you know, they had him in a cell and they wouldn't feed him properly. And you know, they were bitch slapping him with the gloves as Nazis do. You know, doing all that Nazi stuff, coming in with drills and is it safe? Um. That's a Marathon Man reference. If you've not seen the film Marathon Man, Dustin Hoffman, fucking brilliant. Anyway, so he's he's in this cell and he's awful and he's really distressed. So he falls asleep and he goes into this dream, right? And in the dream, it's really that dreamy music comes in. In the dream, he's back in his English country garden, lying on a deck chair. You can hear the birds singing and there's bees buzzing and there's flowers there. And his mum comes out with a, a tray for him with some tea on it and a, you know, uh, a jug with the milk. And she says, hey, I love. And he looks up and he says, oh, mum, it was all a dream. And she says, this is real Monty Python. Now, love. This is the dream. You're still in the cell. <laughs> I just thought that was fucking brilliant. That, you know, the, the play around, the flipping around the madness of things, you know. Why do they always do it? That's a real Monty Python voice. Everyone, they all have that kind of, um, uh, have you been shopping? I have been shopping. That high-pitched voice like what um, uh, Brian's mum had. They, all the way through, they did those voices, you know. Very, very funny. And they were always like men in drag but but you knew they were men <laughs> you know what I mean they just didn't put any makeup around they just had these fucking weird wigs on hello Mrs. A hello Mrs. B have you been shopping nah I've been shopping did you buy anything No, nah, I bought this as a kid I loved it but I didn't know why I loved it but now I know why I loved it and like Spike Milligan and Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and you know all the greats that came after that the goon show back then they were all a bit mad and I know now what they, they were doing and why they were doing it you know that's psychosis. I'm hoping I'm naming that for you. And neurosis. So psychosis is, they're really mad. Let's lock them up and get them lots of medication because they're not in touch with reality. We're sane and we're in touch with reality, but we just can't fucking stand it. We're all fighting with each other and all pretending we don't have feelings. You know, who's the real, what's really mad? It makes you question that, doesn't it? That's why I'm questioning what really is insanity? What is sanity? What's well? You know, um, Bowie, my one of my heroes, as you know, from the 1970 album, The Man Who Sold the World, 
great song. You might know the song. Nirvana had a hit with it. As did Lulu back in 74. I did a lovely version of The Man Who Sold the World. She was really connected into Bowie at the time. Uh, uh, doing fashion stuff or whatever. But anyway, on that album, there was a song called All the Mad Men. And I think Bowie had a lot of insanity in his family. His brother was really mentally unwell and suffered immensely. But in the song All the Mad Men, he says, day after day, they take some brain away to mansions cold and grey, to the far side of town, where it's pointless to be high because it's such a long way down. And the kind of chorus really, and this is, you'll, you'll catch this now, you know. So I'd rather stay here in the institution, right, with all the madmen, than perish with the sad men roaming free. How about that? I'd rather stay here in the fucking loony bin with all the madmen then perish with the sad men roaming free. So one side of the wall is these fucking nut jobs, but who know they're nut jobs, right? They know it. One throw over cooker's nest. Juicy fruit. Remember juicy fruit, the big Indian. That was pretty do you remember that? Now I'm listening to if you haven't fucking seen one throw over cooker's nest, get with the programme people. That's a film you have to see if you're interested in this type of stuff and life and the universe and everything. Um the big Native American Right, he was about six foot five, huge chunk of a man, right? And all through it, and you know it's Jack Nicholson's the main guy in it, and he's a kind of a quirky, charismatic, fucking nut job character in it. All through it, the the uh, the the big chief chief they call him doesn't speak. So they all think he's he's either uh hearing impaired or he just doesn't speak. And he's always there sweeping, you know? Huge mountain of a man. And all through the film they relate to him and all that, you know, he doesn't speak, but they're getting taken down for shock treatment. And uh, Jack Nicholson's character, Mac Murphy, I think was his name, is sitting beside the chief. And they're kind of sitting there in silence. And uh, Jack Nicholson takes out some juicy fruit, chewing gum. And he takes one and he offers the chief one, right? Now, bearing in mind, for about an hour in the film, the chief hasn't said a word. And the chief says, Juicy fruit. <laughs> That's all he said. And Jack Nicholson, you goddamn fool, the man, you can talk. Da -da 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 -da. It was just a beautiful moment, right? So my point is, the people who are meant to be really, really mad, of course there's stuff going on for them, but are they really? The other side of the wall, there's us. Do you know what I mean? The sad men roaming free. That was Bowie's song, All the Mad Men. Pink Floyd, who I'll go back to, Dark Side of the Moon. The whole album, really. I love the Dark Side of the Moon. I love the idea of the Dark Side of the Moon. I'd rather be on the Dark Side of the Moon because all the cool people are there. You know? All the fucking fucked up crazy people. I want to be around them. don't want to be around dangerous people, but people who are kind of free and a bit more open and a bit more crazy. And then, then you're not crazy. Because that's quite sane, isn't it? To, to love and be loved is quite sane, you know? And Pink Floyd, uh, through the whole album, talk about estrangement and uh, separation and agony and angst and pain and uh, disconnection and the desire for connection but a cruel society that won't nurture that you know and how we miscommunicate and all that type of stuff but anyway in the track uh, Brain Damage which is or eclipses at the end. It's at the very near the very end anyway. Um you lock the door, you throw away the key, there's someone in my head, but it's not me. 
they give these great descriptions of the turmoil inside the, the mind that's going mad because they're in pain, right? Uh, and when the cloud bursts thunder in your ear, you shout and no one seems to hear. And when the band you're in starts playing different tunes, I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. That's just a couple of excerpts over. It's just wonderful. They get it. They totally get it, right? Um, and the Wish You Were Here album, which was a couple of years after that, um, they were, it was kind of dedicated to the late great Sid Barrow, who was with Pink Floyd, but died sadly too young. Um, but he went into a psychotic place. He was just this creative genius, like they just unbelievable. And he went, anyway, for some say it was acid related, whatever. He got into a very deeply dark, psychotic place and he was unable to be in the band anymore. And they had to just kind of let him go. It was really sad, right? Guy was brilliant. It was back in the late 60s, early 70s, I think this is what happened, early 70s. And he just, they lost him. And there was no communication for years and he was in and out of mental institutions, this, this genius. And Pink Floyd went on to become wonderful, but brilliant band anyway. And um, so they're doing the album Wish You Were Here, which overall was dedication to Sid Barrett, particularly the song Shine On You Crazy Diamond, which musically is breathtakingly gorgeous. Being the guitar work from Dave Gilmore is always stellar. But in this, it's another stratosphere altogether. And the, he's playing the opening of that, you know, that beautiful note he plays in that Dave Gilmore tone, right? And apparently, I don't know whether this is an urban myth, Sid Barrett, after years, just shows up and sits down as if he's only gone out for a pack of crisps. He's come in. They're all looking at each other. Gilmore's playing the guitar right at that moment. How freaky is that? Right? Yeah, that's that's apparently what happened. Anyway, Wish You Were Here albums. It's, it's wonderful. The cover, brilliant. The guys, the two guys in suits on fire, shaking hands. Their album covers were just, oh, fabulous. So interesting. Um, I know a lot of people love Pink Floyd, but they reference that all the time. You know, what was, what was really saying, you know? So I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Dark Night of the Soul. It's a term that was used. Um, I think it was St. John of the Cross or someone coined that phrase. It's a kind of a mystical term. And other versions, we all know that, it's when we're in a very deep, suffering, dark place and it kind of can go on for quite a while. And it can be, again, mistaken. If we talk to the wrong people, we'll end up getting heavy medication that we may not need, right, at that time. Um, it's like that joke where the, the mystic is great friends with the psychotic. They hang out together. Because there's a crossover, there's a similarity. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say a little bit more in a minute about the, the difference, how you know the difference, right? And anyway, the, the, the psychotic is walking down the road, you know, and he sees a bit of a kerfuffle going on, a bit of a kerfuffle, you know, and uh, he sees his friend, the mystic, getting handcuffed and taken out in a straitjacket into an ambulance, you know, carted off to the funny farm. And they, they, they lock eyes and he says, what's going on? And the mystic in handcuffs just in the straitjacket just got managed. He says to him, how did you escape this? He says, I spoke to the right people. Think about it. You've got to speak to the right people. Choose who you share your soul with. You know, even well-intentioned people could have you fucking sectioned in no time. The certain psychiatrist I wouldn't talk to, I'd be locked up in a heartbeat. <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm telling you. But 
because uh, uh, they may not agree with my definition of sanity. So, the dark night of the soul, and another term I want to express with you is what we call spiritual awakening. Now, people in recovery in the 12-step programs are familiar with that phrase. Uh, it's in step 12. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we carry this message to others or the suffering addict and practice these principles in all our affairs. I guess a well-known saying. Uh, it used to be called a spiritual experience, but they changed it to awakening, right? Uh, and that's really, really important. And the spiritual awakening, you know, isn't always like, na 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 shaft of light through the window, looking up wistfully, I see the light now. My soul is free. It can be. But more often than not, you're sitting in a cell or a funny farm or lying in your own vomit or your own feces or you're in a dark place. It fucking hurts. Spiritual awakenings can hurt. We've got to go through the ringer a bit to get that bit of freedom to realise, I think I might need to change. <laughs> I think they were right. Um, hello, anyone there? I've changed my mind. I, I, I think I like you. I think I'd like to. I'd like some help. Do you know what I mean? Um, but spiritual awakenings can be painful because we're recognizing that kind of neurosis they said where 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 we we know reality we know maybe we've lost our friends and our family we know maybe uh our behavior hasn't been top drawer at all and we feel really bad about it but now we're willing to accept that we were fighting with everything inside of ourselves you know that insanity and we're recognizing i need to change now let me qualify something here I need to change behaviours and ways of thinking, but I don't need to change who I really am. The problem is I'm not being who I really am. So I like the saying, I need to change into who I really am, right? And that's, that's so I need to drop some stuff to do that. Uh, ways of being and habits or false beliefs I have or resistances and all that kind of stuff and fears. And that, and that can be very painful. That's a spiritual awakening when we realise, fuck it, I need to change. And we kind of go, okay, help, surrender is another term that's used, you know, letting go. So a spiritual awakening is when we realize there is another path. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be in recovery. We can all have variations of the spiritual awakening where we kind of go. And then, you know, I'm, I'm, it is painful, but then, then the light does come in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dove man. Then it does start to feel lighter. And then your inner lens starts to change because you're seeing through the eyes of love. And it's like, oh, people you didn't normally like, you're kind of going, they're okay, really. You begin to recognize other people's suffering. Their behavior isn't okay. That's what I recognize. You're a human being also. You're suffering too. You know, lots of that stuff happens. Forgiveness comes in. Uh, tolerance, change of attitude, a desire to reach out to others, a desire to be of use in the world somehow, uh, a desire to to continue to love at deep levels and, and find uh, more fruitful and creative ways to be, to find out who you really are, who you were meant to be, you know, all that lovely stuff, those kind of moments of insight, light bulb moments, if you like, ah, aha moments, beautiful, beautiful. You know, that's your spiritual awakening. And you can have several of them. I've had lots of them, you know, and lots of painful ones. I've had a painful one relatively recently, but a beautiful thing came out of it. Um, but they can hurt 
like hell because you collide with reality and kind of go, oh, something I need to dig, you know, not dig deeper. I'm not mad about the digging. I need to open up to something more deeply in myself. I need to pivot and adjust. Okay, where are we? And we're constantly doing that. I think we can have lots of small little awakenings. You can have little awakenings daily. We might have those real big ones that are very dramatic. But I think every day is a spiritual awakening now, if you like. Okay, that's your spiritual awakening. Everyone's aware of that. And again, spiritual is a broad term. Another word is transpersonal. It's just beyond the person, including me and you and something else. So like that higher power is another term that might be used. Uh, but spiritual, spiritus means the breath, the breath of life. It's Latin, spiritus. So, uh, I think you're you're kind of familiar with that. I'm sure you've all had them. You mightn't call them that. It doesn't matter what you call them, but you know it feels a bit better. You know, hurts for a while, then it starts to feel better. It will heal. Healing can hurt, can be dark and painful, but we don't have to be so alone in our loneliness, you know, because uh, it can be very isolating, a lot of despair. A lot of deep sobs, deep sadness. I can feel that in me now. I have that, you know. I don't. Again, as I said, I don't believe you arrive at a place and you're okay. Where I think we're constantly growing. I can feel some deep pain in me from past hurts that I've probably caused myself to some degree, shames, or the way I've shamed myself, maybe, and I've had to apologise to myself and said, you know what, Jamie, I'm really sorry. I put you through that. I'm sorry I kind of sold you short there a few times, you know, and I'm sorry I allowed you to be humiliated. And I had to make okay with that, you know, because there's no point in uh, rubbing salt in the wounds, as I said, by kind of realizing that you've humiliated yourself and then you humiliate yourself because you did. Kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? So their spiritual awakenings continue being open to uh, seeing, to hearing. It's like you hear things differently, you see things differently, you know. And again, it can come through the music, as I've said, you know. When you stop fighting with reality, you know, stop fighting with the facts, you know what I mean? It is as it is. And if you can welcome that and breathe into that and actually want the very thing that you resist, because it's there anyway. So that's insanity. What's the definition of insanity? Same behavior, expecting a different result. So I keep doing the same thing. I'm wondering why I'm fucked up and hurt. You know, I need to change that. Change the record. You know, change the tape. And then, you know, a bit of therapy can help with that. Good friends can help. Support meetings, whatever you need to use. Reading, listening to music, listening to this stuff, me, other people, whatever. Whatever gets you through the night is a line that I say a lot. So that's the dark, that's the dark night, the soul, spiritual awakening. Uh, and I talked about spiritual emergence. It's kind of a similar thing. So emergence is a lovely word. It's a kind of a feeling of something coming slowly into being. It's emerging. It's just around the corner. You can f- it's just over the hill. It's just coming. You can feel it in yourself. So it's a bit like a, it's a slower version of the awakening. It's an emergence. You feel something's changing in you. You know, you're having deeper dreams, maybe. You're in touch with more deeper pain, but it's okay. There's an acceptance coming in. There's a desire to reach out and love and be loved, to have that transparency, as I spoke about. You're not so afraid of someone rejecting you. You know, no, I still don't like it, but I'm not afraid of it. I'm not going to let fear stop me anymore, you know. And if it turns out that the other or others in the situation kind of go, I kind of love Jimmy, he was kind of cool, but now he's, I don't, I'm not sure, you know, whatever, whatever. That's about them, not about me. I don't mind that. We can all coexist there. I'm not going to compromise that. Of course I'll compromise. I'm not going to compromise my soul, my essence, 
because it might make you a bit uncomfortable or maybe in touch with your own vulnerability or whatever. You know, that's that's not going to work for anyone, is it? You know, I'm not, I don't want to harm you. And if I can change my behavior to, if, if it causes you suffering, of course I will. But I'm not going to change who I am, what naturally moves through me. And I, I would never want that for you. That's sanity. So that's a spiritual emergence. It's a lovely term, isn't it? It's a little, you know, it can feel a little bit frightening though, because it's like the, it's like almost like the, the tectonic plates of the, it's a real Anne O'Connell term. She uses that quite a lot. Shift in your soul, in your psyche, when it can feel a bit destabilizing because something deeply is moving through you. There's a transformation happening and transformation means there's a lot of change and that can feel quite scary. That's why we go back to old, oh. but if you have a, a kind of a center, we talk about being centered uh, and right down through you from your, uh, I suppose your crown chakra, right into your third eye, down into your throat chakra, heart, solar plexus, sacral chakra below and base chakra, if you're right down in your feet and you're earthed, then, you know, those movements inside you can be sustained. It's okay. And your breath will help with that. You'll hear me saying that a lot. It's okay. This too shall pass. And it steadies. And then when it steadies, it's pretty fucking cool. And then you feel stronger and all of that, you know. And then you repeat, rinse and repeat, as they say. And it's less dramatic because you're not as afraid the second time. But to connect in with the with psychosis, where psychosis and mysticism can be mixed up, we can have what's called a spiritual emergency. That's quite. That's much more dramatic. And that can look like psychosis because maybe we're hallucinating. Maybe I joked on, um, I was on, um, I guested on a Traveller on a Countryman podcast with Dean Scurry and, and Martin Stokes a good few months back before Christmas. And I spoke about uh, <laughs> when I first began to speak in tongues, you know, tongues. <laughs> and Martin's real religious, right? So he thought I really meant it, you know what I mean? I said, yeah, I discovered I could speak in tongues, you know. You know those religious people that go into, they speak all that kind of Latin tongue stuff, right? Well, I discovered it in, in, in the cold shower. You know when you hit the, or, or when I went sea swimming first, which I'm going to say again, I was doing before fucking loads of people, right? Before that fucking pandemic happened. <laughs> I had a little bit of a resentment about that. But it's a sweet little resentment. So when I was my first emergent into the cold, you know what happens? I said, hello, lads, blah, blah, blah. And I, 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 this kind of, these words started to come out. I thought, that sounds like tongues. So every time I know I'm in the shower and I have a little culture after they speak in tongues. So blah, 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 blah. And I was joking on that, that like when that was happening, there was kind of blind people seeing around me and some people in wheelchairs were standing up because I was speaking in these tongues. That was my little joke about it, you know. But the spiritual emergency can be terrifying if you don't know what it is, you know. And Groff talks a lot about this, Stanislav Groff, in, in an or, unordinary states of consciousness because the past, the future, the present, you know, consciousness starts to evolve and change very quickly and it can be quite destabilizing, like the emergence, but even more dramatic. Now, if you talk to the wrong people there, you're going to end up in a straitjacket because it can really look like a psychotic episode. But I'm going to tell you the difference. I'm going to tell you, listen to Uncle Jimbo, there's a big difference if you know what to look for, right? And it's quite simple, really. Um, the difference between the psychosis and a spiritual emergency. In the psychosis, there's a genuine divorce from 
consensus reality that the person believes what's happening to them is real. But with that level of mental illness, there's always a sense of persecution and blame for the other. There's no sense of ownership, responsibility, adult self. Okay. That's always present in mental, that level of mental illness. No sense of self-reflection, no responsibility, no uh, ability to self-reflect and kind of go, oh, I, I know what's happening to me. Spiritual emergency, spiritual awakening, spiritual emergence that can look very chaotic and frightening and very painful. The person always knows at some level this is happening to me and I am aware that I am here, even though I'm frightened by what's happening to me. Get the difference, right? So the the psychotic is he, she believes this is real and it's everyone else's fault and da, 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 da. the person in the spiritual awakening doesn't blame anybody it's a bit more self-reflective has insight knows at some level i am frightened of this but i instinctively know it's kind of okay i need the right people around me to support me now we need lots of support if we're in that because we could mistakenly end up on heavy medication getting all kinds of weird diagnoses you know because Again, the spiritual emergency can be very dramatic. We may speak in tongues, literally. We may have these kind of visions, hallucinations, so to speak, but they're very different. We're aware, you know. So it's like if I have a crazy thought, I'm aware. That's a bit of a crazy thought, Jamie, isn't it? I have a, uh, an inner commentary of that, you know. So in your spiritual emergency, you have an inner a commenter or a commentator. That's kind of adult and amid all of the different shifting that's going on and the very powerful feelings and maybe there's lots of tears and maybe there's rage and its moods are shifting and perception shifting. It can be quite, I've had that experience and thankfully I've been around the right people when that happened. That would be terrifying to happen either all on your own and if you didn't know what it was. I've had a bit of that on my own, but I was able to know to breathe and to pray because it's a bit frightening and I would use prayer. Uh, I don't believe in one particular, I believe in God. I'll talk, whoever's going to help me. Jesus Christ, help me please. I've prayed to Mary, I've prayed to Buddha, I've prayed to uh, people who have passed, I've prayed to people who have passed. I don't mind. There's a spiritual energy that I'm drawn from that can be quite peaceful and easing at a time where there's turmoil, where we need peace, you know. So the turmoil inside the spiritual emergency has an adult behind it who is very, knows something is going on. The turmoil inside the psychotic, he, she believes that's real and has no adult self and acts out of that and has no ability to reflect back and kind of go, God, look what's happening to me. They think it's real and they will blame people. So at a simple level, how you often know Milton, there's a lot of blaming all the time. It's that, it's how, as opposed to someone else who's half struggling and is kind of going, well, yeah, there are some unpleasant things. I do blame so-and-so, so-and-so, but I you know it's my reaction's important. What am I going to do about that? You know, there's that sense of things. Um, that's really, really important. So I hope I've made that distinction clear. What you get with someone in deep mental illness that will distinguish that from someone going through a spiritual difficulty is the person in the mental illness is more victimy, very blamey, constantly and has no sense of, hmm, I wonder, could I have a look at that? The other person is able to, if you ask them, 
can tell you what's happening to them, can tell you what day it is, where they are, but I'm experiencing this dreadful pain inside of me or these changing moods or whatever it is, but I'm okay, essentially. And I can know I'm okay if I'm with people that can let me know I'm okay. So it's very crucial. It's a bit like having an acid trip, really, where you can have a spiritual emergency. I guess no surprise they used to use acid to uh, ketamine, different types of drugs like that to help people get into those unordinary states of consciousness to help them arrive at a spiritual place. Peyote and mescaline and, you know, the Native Americans, indigenous peoples would use those rituals to bring about a spiritual emergency, but they all knew what they were doing. It was a ritual and they had lots of support. So what someone needs there is shedfuls of support, lots of love and support, reassurance, and it always will ease. And when it eases, eventually, gradually, the sense of peace and renewal, it's like I could take on the world then. It's very refreshing. I remember having a particularly powerful one. Thankfully, I was on a, a breath work. It's about 25, 30 years ago. And I have to tell you, it was pretty profound, right? It was cool. I went right into something very quickly. And um, this is a common experience. I can remember the terror. I absolute, absolute terror like I've never felt before. But obviously, I did because it was coming out of me. And I could hear this screaming going on. And I remember thinking, God, that's terrible screaming. Someone's in agony. It was me. <laughs> I could hear it. You know that experience? And then I went into the darkest of dark, dark places. And I could, oh, I think I'm going mad. This is terrible. I'm not going to be a terrifying a little bit birth stuff and infant stuff and, you know, just all that type of stuff. But anyway, with a lot of help and support, it was still a lot of catharsis and release and dance and movement as well came into an uh, abreaction and shaking. And uh, so I was probably about 30 then. So there's about 30 years of uh, unresolved, unfelt pain, isolation, shame, you know, really bottled up in there, you know. And, and the, the breath work is a very, you know, cathartic way to release that. Now, I don't believe they're good enough on their own. You need to do lots more stuff because you can get a bit addicted to the catharsis, the release. That's good. But I, it was definitely, I remember it being discussed and people that very experienced were saying that sounds like a, a very profound uh, spiritual emergency you're in there because I needed support all through that weekend. It was a residential. I was terrified. I was fucking terrified. You know, the devil and everything was coming. I was like, that's why um, a spiritual uh, emergency can feel a bit psychotic because you get those kind of religious, because you're, 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 really unraveling very deep consciousness and you're, you're connecting with the collective consciousness. I spoke about that before with Carl Jung and you're connecting with, again, the intersection between the dark and the light, right? So obviously when you go to the place of the deepest suffering, to the dark, to get to the light, you're going to encounter not pleasant things, you know, whether you believe in demons or not, I'm not even going to get into that. I was terrified of the devil. He, it was coming. Oh my God. And I prayed and prayed like I never prayed before. Fucking petrified. I had to have someone with me the whole time. But I knew what was happening. It was, a, you know, there was a, there was also an ease as well because I understood this was the process. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the visions I had were of, 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 you know, uh, crosses and flames and you know ritualistic stuff and something terrible was happening and like oh I was in hell and 
that's very common, by the way, it wasn't on you. People have that in those experiences. It wasn't, you know, Jamie's a fucking weirdo. That's quite in, in human consciousness there. We all carry that, you know, the archetype of that, you know, and that was very freeing. But I needed support for the, the whole weekend and then even for a few weeks afterwards because that was a, that was an extremely big one, right? But I've had variations of that since, but, you know, obviously not as powerful. But the big thing was I understood. I know, I know this. And it's really just meditations of prayer. So that's why I would use prayer quite a lot, uh, thankfully, because I do believe in the insanity of life, whether you believe there is actual entities of evil or not. I have no idea, but there is something not good. And a lot, very good. Whatever that is, whatever your beliefs are, there is something. We've all felt different, whether it's an energy, whether it's just hatred, the energy of hatred, a lot of it. It's very scary, isn't it? You know? Um, but here's that lovely thing. No matter how dark it is, think about when you're in a really dark room and you, remember, you don't see the many matches and you light a match. The whole room lights up. So the tiniest of light can, you know, so, and that's very important because in insanity, in psychosis, people will, will have lots of demonic experiences and lots of, but they think it's real, you know, and they're, uh, so there's a lot of that type of stuff and people thinking they're messiahs and all that kind of thing. That's why you get that crossover in, in mysticism and in spiritual emergence. They can look similar. So I said, if the wrong people came along to one of those workshops, everyone would be fucking in straitjackets. But there's a huge difference, and I've, I hope I've highlighted the difference for you um, in that. Okay. Um, and that, that view wouldn't be seen by traditional psychiatry. Now, if I was explaining that to a psychiatrist that wasn't clued into that type of stuff, he or she would be writing a prescription as we speak, making phone calls. Yeah, get that bed ready for him. Yeah. Hey, you've been under a lot of stress lately, Mr. George. <laughs> Do you know? So it's, it is really important who you talk to and who you surround yourself with in general. Okay. I think I might be moving closer to, uh, a finish. Why am I Loudon Wainwright? Oh, yes. I was thinking of the Loudon Wainwright song. I don't even know Loudon Wainwright the third. Very interesting singer. His son is Rufus Wainwright, beautiful singer. His daughter is a gorgeous singer, Martha Wainwright. And um, I certainly recommend them. But Loudon Wainwright's kind of angry, cynical, but very, very clever songwriter, you know. Uh, yeah, a bit acerbic, but, you know. But there was something appealing about it. I was listening to him this morning, actually. Um, but you know when I was describing the, the everyday madness we all have of not accepting reality even though we know what the reality is he's got a brilliant song called Down Drinking at the Bar and we've all been in this situation where someone we love or care about they're not coming home they've gone out for a pint of milk but they've gone to the bar right? he or she doesn't matter who and you, deep down in your gut you know it you knew it before they went right you know, when you haven't got a good connection with someone but you want to have and you just feel they're always going to be gone right so they're gone so he's singing about it in the brilliant way he does you know and um, and you, there's a lovely part in the song where you can hear him coming stop fighting the reality and he comes in touch with the truth so he's kind of going uh, he's, he's ringing he's ringing up he says I'm standing in the phone booth coping with the ugly truth see I know where you are you're down drinking in the bar and it's a real kind of cynical snarly song it's fucking brilliant because it's it's a real pain in the ass when you're in that situation and he does this lovely routine uh, I would suggest listen to Loudon Wainwright the live one down drinking at the bar because you can really identify that he goes through 
uh, all those feelings you're having where you're wondering where they are. They're sitting with someone, you know. Um, he's kind of, Dean Martin's on the jukebox, I bet. Or maybe it's Tammy Wynette. And he's gone through this kind of angry thing and just imagine you're sitting at the bar and you're meant to be at home with me and there you are, you know. Uh, yeah. I know where you are, baby. You're down drinking in the bar. Great, great song. But in it, he's, he hits the acceptance space. He has to go through a bit of anger. He's fighting with it. Boom. You know. So, coping with the ugly truth. It's an ugly truth, isn't it? We have to cope with the ugly truth. You know, we know something and we don't want to accept it. But it's, but then when you actually cope with the ugly truth, it's not that ugly anymore. Then you get a bit like cynical and a bit like, I fucked them. You know what I mean? That's your altitude. You can stay up there. You know, I think I've been going on a long time. Um, yeah, Peter Cook, Moore. I hope, I'm hoping now I'm staying on track because I can have a tendency to go off on one. Uh, I wanted to say something about beautiful, beautiful uh, poem, poet Brianna Weist, is her name. And this is just a little excerpt, a little piece that she wrote. And I fell in love with it as soon as I saw it. And again, I'm placing this in the realm of sanity, of wellness, that we're never really taught about. But she says this, now you can see why it might appeal to me, right? It says, everything that is meant for you will feel like a deep exhale, as though you're re- you are returning home to a place you forgot existed. I'll read that again, because it's beautiful. So everything that is meant for you will feel like a deep exhale as though you are returning home to a place you forgot existed. Love that. That's wholeness, isn't it? Isn't that sanity? Isn't that just exciting and beautiful? I think. Right, me thinks. Definitely, definitely. It kind of reminds me a little bit of your returning home, home being the metaphor of that beautiful uh, Randy Newman song, sung also very coolly and amazingly by Bonnie Raitt, a song called Feels Like Home. Um, I heard that recently and cried. It's so beautiful. Um, mm. So the home in that song is the same home, isn't it? Returning home, returning to that place we forgot existed. Almost like the T.S. Eliot poem I think I spoke about before, where we return to that place as if for the first time, but we know it. So that's, uh, that song, if you don't know it, listen to it, it's, again, reeks of sanity, wholeness. Beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, and I'd recommend both versions, even though Randy Newman wrote it, Bonnie Raitt sings it beautifully. Um, so just to kind of round off to couple of metaphors or symbols I'm going to use. Um, one is, oh yeah, Jimi Hendrix. I was listening to Jimi Hendrix today in my therapy room. And I'm a big fan of Jimi Hendrix. I was listening to all the classics all along the Watchtower. Brilliance. Uh, Purple Haze. Excuse me while I kiss the sky. What a line. Excuse me while I kiss the sky. There was a guy that was sane, a mystic, a poet. A guitarist there has never been. Stevie Ray Vaughan came close because he was a, but there's been no guitarist like Jimi Hendrix. Not only because he was just a purely gifted guitarist, but the kind of experimental, mystical stuff he was doing. He was like spiritual emergence all day, Jimi Hendrix, right? 
brilliant lyrics, great singer. Uh, but what? So he experimented with these kind of psychedelic sounds and these kind of uh, distortions on the guitar. No one was doing it like Hendrix was doing it. Oh, just delicious. Fucking delicious, right? I think you you picking up I like Hendrix but I was listening to those songs you know and, and he's a blues guitarist really Bill, Dave Gilmore's a blues guitarist but could adapt that to the Pink Floyd's kind of lofty style right Hendrix with all of his kind of like distortions and experiments is primarily a blues man you know um, but a lot of his songs aren't done in a straightforward blues tempo but I was listening to them and hey Joe you know where are you going with that gun in your hand <laughs> then I come to Red House. A Red House is done in a typical blues tempo, 12 bar style. Very simple, but sizzlingly hot guitar work. But it's a very simple, you know, that kind of way. But what I love about Red House is very simple. Uh, and you'll see the kind of symbols or the metaphors I'm talking about. Again, this is into wholeness and sanity, but done in a quite a cheeky way. So it's very, very blues, blues lyrics. And blues lyrics aren't that deep. All of Hendrix's other lyrics are very poetic and deep. But the blues lyrics are more about the music, about being able to feel right into the place where we feel desperately sorry for ourselves. We can wallow in our pain, but heal it through these, these blues bars. Love it. I've gotten such healing from listening to blues music, Peter Green and Fleetwood Mac, all that stuff. So and it's, a, it's, it's a real typical blues song. Um, there's a red house over there, over yonder, right? And that's where his baby lives, right? So the red house might be the metaphor for life, for living, who knows? And it might actually be his baby's house, right? But that's where she lives. He hasn't been there for a while, but he's going there, right? Boom, in the song. So off he goes. And then you hear him singing, Wait a minute, wait a minute, something's wrong here. My key don't fit the door, right? So he can't get in. The key can't unlock. Again, symbolism. He can't get in, right? And this fucking ripping guitar work is going on beautifully in the background. Boom, this lovely blues rhythm. So he can't get in. And he says, I got a bad, bad feeling. Very blues song. My baby don't live here no more, right? Something wrong here. So he's, he's in distress. Guitar's going on, right? And then he says, and this, I love this line. Then he pivots, kind of goes, hey, but I still got my guitar, right? Doesn't matter. And he goes into this great guitar riff. So that's, that's the metaphor. I still have my soul. I still have me, even if my baby's gone. Yeah, I'm heartbroken, but I, my guitar, I still have my own talent. You know, when someone leaves you, they don't take that with them. Right, so I've still got my guitar. So then it goes on. He's feeling a bit better, and he's he's kind of soothing himself, and he does this fucking scintillating riff. Right, it's a real short song. Uh, I hope you listen to it after this if you don't know it. Right, but my favorite favorite line comes at the very end because it's kind of cheeky, uh, and it just touches me deeply every time I hear it it makes me smile and giggle all the way through so he says right I'm gonna go back over yonder back over to those hills where I came from you know um, back over to the hill you know and then this line comes at the very end and you know what if my baby don't love me no more I know her sister will. <laughs> it's fucking gorgeous, isn't it? So what's that really saying? You know, it might well be saying, you know, the way the sister often has the eye on you, you know what I mean? She's giving you the looks, you know. I know you're looking at me and I'm looking at you. So the sister's there, right? But the sister might be a metaphor for maybe there's someone else who will love you 
or maybe that's yourself. You know what I mean? Maybe that's your own inner strength. You know, if my baby don't love me, I know a sister will. Someone's going to love you. Okay, won't replace your baby, but that's heartbreaking. And you but like, you know, you'll still love yourself, you know? So like when he discovered he still has a guitar, now he's discovering, okay, this is a bad situation. I'm lonely. I'm lost. My baby's gone. But if she don't love me no more, I saw the way her sister was looking at me. I think I'm in there. <laughs> How cool is that? You know what I mean? Um, that we're going to be okay, basically, is what you're saying. Love will still be there. It's all right. It might be a bit dark for a while, but we'll come through it, you know? So on the theme of going home, um, I'm going to finish with the late, great Dory Previn, who had a strong history of being in and out of mental institutions and she was mistakenly psychotic, but I think she was more in spiritual emergence or emergency and it was mistaken quite a lot, I think, uh, at the time. And she was a, a songwriter, not everyone's cup of tea. As I said before, she makes Leonard Cohen look like happy hour. She's very dark. She speaks about right into the pain, right into the psyche. She's there, right? And she, she hasn't got a fantastic singing voice, but um, I like her voice. But I, she's a poet, really. I like what she's singing. But remember, we're using home as a symbol for the self. Like, you know, it feels like home for the self or love with another. Genuine kind of transparency. Sanity, right, is home, okay? And on her 1971 album, Mythical Kings and Iguanas, um, there's a song called Lady with the Braid. And in that song, she's speaking about the agony of being uh, separated from a loved one and being lonely and wanting connection. And just wanting someone, it could be a guy, could be the other way around, I don't know, just to stay with her for the night because she's, she says, you know, the night cuts through me like a knife. Will you stay for a while and save my life? Because she's saying, you know, because going home is such a ride, you know, it's too far to go. You know, would you care to stay till sunrise? It's completely your decision. You know, it's like, it's a very painful song, but it, we can all identify with it. You know, whether it's a, a sexual partner or just to be with a human being because the night's cutting through you like a knife, you know, and you just feel you want your life saved. That's sanity to want that. You know, it's completely whole. But at the very end of the album, and if you don't know this album, I would recommend you listen to this song. You, you might like the whole album, but you will like this song. At the end, she does a kind of a, a combination of um, the song Mythical Kings and Iguanas, and then she moves into going home, it's called, right? And it's beautiful because there's a kind of, a, it builds up slowly and there's a kind of a backing gospel choir comes in gradually. It's just beautiful, but the, the lines are really simple. It says, going home is such a ride. Going home is such a ride. Isn't going home a long and lonely ride? And to me, that speaks hugely of that place. Maybe it's the dark night of the soul. Maybe it's the period of separation between you and those you love. That that journey home. You know, we talk about being going homeward. But home is where the heart is, isn't it? Home is sanity. Home is wholeness. It's both within us and outside of us in connection. So i just leave you on that line again. Going home is such a ride. Going home is such a ride. Isn't going home a long and lonely ride? So, on that note, 
on that sane note, because it's all about wholeness and sanity. Um, I use that lovely phrase that Betty uses. I keep thinking I'll change it, but I like it. I leave you and love you. Say, I leave you and love you. So I will leave you and love you. Thank you for joining me in the Twilight Conversations. If you'd like to get in contact with us regarding any aspect of the show, you can get in touch at thetwilightconversations at gmail.com. So the Twilight Conversations is an independent project. We're not getting any help from anybody. No major corporations or anything like that. So if you like the content, if you like what you're hearing, please continue to support us via our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the Twilight Conversations.